0: You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast.
1: What does one do with those dreams? How are those dreams deferred? What do they morph into? Do they morph into something violent and grotesque? Or are they just passed down to the different generations where it would morph into hope?
2: Welcome back to the Wheeler Center. In this episode, Kath Moore speaks with Kevin Jared Hussein, exclusively for the Wheeler Center podcast. Kevin Jared Hussein is fast becoming known as one of global literature's most exciting new talents. His new novel, Hungry Ghosts, explores violence, religion, family, and class against the backdrop of 1940s colonial central Trinidad. The Wheeler Centre acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which the centre stands. We acknowledge and pay our respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their elders, past and present, as the custodians of the world's oldest continuous living culture.
0: Kevin, hello. It's such a pleasure to be with you here at the Wheeler Centre. Thank you so much for joining us in conversation. Um, You've authored three... RYA novels, including The Repenters, which was long listed for the International Dublin Literary Awards, but it's your first adult novel that has brought you here to Australia. And this is a book which has already garnered high praise from the literary world. I read a really lovely example from Bernadine Evaristo, who said that the book was linguistically gorgeous, narratively propulsive and psychologically profound, and I can attest to all of those things being true. Congratulations.
1: Thank you, and it's a pl- it's a privilege to be here.
0: Oh, thanks, Kevin. Um, we're going to get to Hungry Ghosts, but maybe let's set the scene a little bit for our listeners. So you were born in Trinidad in 1986, and I think as far as I'm aware, it was first video games rather than books mm. that first held your attention as a kid. So I'm really interested to learn a little bit about when that shift occurred. When did you first find that spark in reading and writing?
1: I think what happened was when when I would finish and the, the types of video games I used to play when I was a child were mostly story-driven games, uh, Japanese role-playing games. And like the final for example and I wanted to create my own so which means that I had to get out pencil and paper and my dad would actually um, from his workplace would would bring home these large sheets of paper and I would just be plotting my own uh, video game plot line and it would be like these story beats and like character descriptions and these would take months to complete, but this was like when I was um eight, nine years old and it, it would be dozens or sometimes like a hundred pages of plot. This is actually how I just I just thought like that process, even though I wasn't programming a vi- video game itself, the actual creative process was was limitless. I could have imagined myself creating a world with with anything. And from that age that was, you know, quite poignant for me. And then I shifted perspective to just writing out the plotline because I, on the internet, I discovered fan fiction where, you know, sometimes a video game might be completed or or, um, animated series or movie might be done, but people would create these extra plotlines. So I was kind of doing that with my own stuff. And I think it just naturally progressed into literary fiction over the years um, when I was in my late teens, early twenties, and yeah, but now it's shifted to books
0: so the impetus was all there. It's so interesting that that the idea about creating stories was something that you were preoccupied by, and over time those those spaces or places where you explored those stories changed as well. I think it's interesting that perhaps some of your your early um, resonances maybe were authors like Stephen King, Cormac McCarthy. Mm. I can see that there is a, a a likeness there, a sensibility, especially with the tone that that Cormac McCarthy's work evokes. And I I had read you talking about that that notion or that idea of darkness mm. that sits within that kind of writing. Was that something that that inspired you early on? That sense of creating tone on the page.
1: It did, and well, you you started off with I, you know, I started writing for young adults, and I would say my writing got those books actually got progressively darker, until you know it it, it ended up as you know Hungry Ghosts, which is you know one of the darkest things I've written, and I, I think many people would agree who have read it, and there's a significance to the tone of darkness when it comes to Caribbean literature, especially for um, writers writing about the Caribbean who are are actually living in the Caribbean because darkness is is part of of our culture to the point that we've evoked um, lots of of humor in it. We've twisted it and made it malleable to a point where it is not, just darkness as you think of it in the, the, the gothic um horror-like sense but that it's in, in, a, in a sort of cultural um comedic sense as well so where it seems almost as if you know where there's light there there must be shadow and a lot of us a lot of of our local writers and artists have come to accept that it is, it has to be a part of life.
0: Mm, mm. And I think, you know, what I loved about your book was that it seems to me beautifully emblematic of a lot of contemporary Caribbean writing. You know, you're traversing those ideas about exile and self-determination and resilience and and perseverance. Um, You know, but it's interesting that the Caribbean, you know as a as a region of, of thirteen nations has always been at the forefront of some really significant liberation movements you know in the new world. So I wondered, you know how much of your heritage of being of place influences or impacts on your identity as a writer?
1: Being an indo Trinidadian there's There's not many people who are even aware that there's a significant Indian population, East Indian population in the Caribbean. Most of us are in Trinidad and Tobago and Guyana, and they're kind of um speckled throughout so like even if we even like when we go to St. Lucia or Jamaica, um people would think we come from Mumbai and not from the Caribbean itself. so it's not even within the caribbean it's it's not that well known. So, yeah, so when we, so typically when you think Caribbean, personal Caribbean people is not what comes to mind. And uh, even if you were to look at the billboards that I in Trinidad or look at the the commercials, you you may not see, it's it's, it's changing now, but you may not have seen like a lot of representation in that sense. And that's actually, you know, been felt in some pockets of of the Indo-Caribbean community. And even our, let's say, Trinidad's most famous or infamous writer, V.S. Naipaul, you know, was of the East Indian community. He has rejected Trinidad altogether. So it's not even we could uphold him as, as a hero gosh, <laughs> of, of the gosh. community. So, but he did lend voice to, um, you know, the Indo-Trinidadian population, like in a house for Mr. Biswas. And there's a it it uh, sometimes it's it felt like it was from the outside looking in, especially how he just wanted to escape from Trinidad, and yeah I I I wanted to go more internal with it because I grew up in um I grew up in Kearney, which is in central Trinidad and it is where there would have been um, sure cane estates cane um, fields. And uh, where well, a lot of indented laborers would have been. So I grew up in a village there, close to the river. And there's a oral storytelling tradition that, that happened in that village. A lot of that had not been written down. So I can't, I did my, my aim when I was writing Hungry Ghosts, but my aim was to get it published. It was just to kinda of record all of these stories into, into text.
0: Fascinating. Also, what is interesting to me, even though I have Guyanese heritage, is because I wasn't raised there, I feel also like I'm on the outside looking in. And it's mm. funny that you mentioned V.S. Paul because he is one of the only Caribbean writers that I read when I was growing up, trying to, to claw my way back into that kind of broader West Indian sense of place. But as you mentioned... There are so many complexities. There are so many problematics. There are so many um, different realities that exist in the Caribbean. It's hard to to pinpoint or define, you know, um, uh, a, a kind of um, overarching sense of what it is to be mm. Caribbean. Um, we were talking about how it is that you were researching for *Hungry Ghosts*, and one of your immediate access points, because this is a, a book that's set in the 1940s, was your grandfather. So, again, fascinating that we are still seeking and searching parts of ourselves through our lineage as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience of, of drawing on family to recreate that sense of Trinidad in the 40s? Mm
1: so so Ker- Caribbean families like to talk but they also don't like to talk if they know they're going to be recorded um so when so whenever there was let's say some kind of event in the family whether it be um a wedding or a puja or type of prayers um a funeral week there would be you know people would gather and, they, and 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 they would tell all these stories about um certain people maybe the the deceased or someone like their father their uncle and th- there would always be linkages to things around them and when I was little is that I, d- I didn't like reading books much but I like listening to those stories and you know as I grew older I realized that you know in a sense that that is literature too even though we don't might not think of it like that because there's a sense in which those types of stories can capture you and hold you there's a and there's a sense of of skill in, in in telling those stories. So I I was commissioned to write an article about Trinidad and I didn't know what to write about. So and I just kind of went with my gut and I said, you know, I'll go back to those stories that my my grandfather was telling. And I also went back to my own childhood. So in when, when I was about uh seven years old or so so in Trinidad and, and in, in the Caribbean each each many Caribbean islands have their own carnival yeah which is like you know a big party um and it's like a farewell to flesh in a way and the the, the village that I grew up in had this ritual on Carnival Monday, Carnival Two days and where we would put on masks and it would usually be like flea mask, flea market mask, maybe like vampires, werewolves, and we would put on very old, busted up shirts, and we would take these broomsticks, and we would go house to house, and knock on the door, the gate, and people would have to come out and pay us to go away. So, so that ritual was called jab jab. We used to call it that, and. Typically, it used to be like me, my cousins, and maybe the neighbors at, at both sides. But, uh, yeah, one day we were joined by uh, a, a strange child. And because, you know, we were wearing masks, and the child had, didn't have on, like, a flea market mask. The child had on, like, a makeshift mask that just took, like, a copybook page and drew, like, a, a sad face on it, like a kind of ghostly face on it. Um, yeah, they kind of stood out. We didn't know who, who this child was. And you know, we were all getting these coins because, you know, the, the, the people in the village would pay us to go away because, you know, we had to pretend to be monsters and demons, you know. And at the end of the day, the, what we would do is go to the the local uh, parlor, which is, you know, like a shop, and we would buy chocolates, um, candies, confectionaries, and this strange child um, bought bread <laughs> with the money. And then... You know, at the time, we thought that that was really silly. But the child then wandered through the bushes and went to this area at the back of the village that, that, that I grew up in. That area was just, you know, we typically just call it the squatter settlement. Yeah. And this the squatter settlement was a place where uh, many of our elders told us not to go there, not to, not to mix with the people there, not to talk to the children there. Because there's, you know, they they're basically unsavory characters, and they're gonna lead us down bad roads, and we're gonna learn bad things from them. You, you know these these stories. So, but it was it was right there, and at the time we just kind of accepted this, and then we would make up our own stories about them, that um, you know they probably have spiders in their pillows or. Um, the 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 mosquitoes they are a lot bigger yeah so and that they i don't know they they eat rats like the people yeah it would it would keep going on and on and on and the imagination would just run wild so i i i when i went to my grandfather i wanted to i wanted him to kind of go back to to why you know why why was it like that and then he got to talking about um what he, what, what, what we would have called bound coolies, and coolies are a derogatory term for East Indian. I said that you know those people were bound to a certain type of filth, a certain type of life, and that was what it was believed, and they they just couldn't escape it. And a lot of them might have come from uh, sugar cane estate barracks, which means that they didn't buy land, um, to to escape from colonial life. They just kind of stayed there and wallowed in filth and they didn't want us you know mixing with them i thought that was a a i planted a kind of seed in my head that it it it, it revealed a, a sort of reasons for a lateral discrimination that we we didn't otherwise acknowledge that much and yeah. it's not
0: really spoken about actually no it's yeah. not spoken
1: of that much
0: that's fascinating because you know those origin stories that you're talking about Having read the book, I can see exactly how it is that you've used those to carve out these beautifully crafted characters and that idea that each of the characters that you've written has a very complex intersectionality. You cover – there's race, there's gender. There is this sense of class at play mm. here too. So let's get into Hungry Ghost. So for the uninitiated listeners – Hungry Ghost is set in colonial Trinidad as it was in the 1940s, and the story follows two interwoven families. You have the Changus, uh Dalton, and uh, his wife, Marley, who live in this big grand estate at the top of the hill. And then, literally, down below, we meet the Sarups. Is that the correct yes, pronunciation? That's um, we have uh, husband and wife, Hans and Schweta and their teenage son, Krishna, who plays a really pivotal role in kind of holding all of these characters together. And the fate of all of these people soon becomes um, complicated and interwoven as we unpack this mysterious disappearance of Dalton Changur. Um... While the title, I think, is playing around with Hindu mythology, no? The concept mm. of a hungry ghost, of, of somebody who is insatiable, has this insatiable appetite for something. Mm. To me, it was also emblematic of all of the characters. They were hungry for change, they were hungry to be something else, to, to have something else. This idea that, you know, they hadn't yet fully reconciled their place in life, or perhaps their personal losses. Was that something that you were really cognizant of exploring? That idea of of not being at peace with oneself.
1: Yeah, it is. It is also a metaphor for that, um, where it's where you have all these ambitions and goals and dreams, and I wanted to apply that to the people the impoverished people. I didn't just want them to be, woe is me, I am poor. <laughs> that they do have the ambitions of, of anyone else. The difference is, is that the path for them is almost impossible. And as I said, it's almost like an insatiable appetite. And you know, what does one do with, the, do with those dreams? How are those dreams deferred? What do they morph into? Do they morph into something um, violent and grotesque, or are they just passed down to the different generations where it would morph into hope for that instead? And the answer is true in, in both cases, because a lot of indented laborers, when they, they came, they, they probably knew that they themselves would not be able to get out of the situation, but at least the generation following them could, and they would make certain sacrifices. But they are also the group that it would be they would be struck with a type of fatalism and they'd be like well if i'm not getting out i don't want anybody to get out and there's a there's a type of complexity in that um that type of thinking yeah that's explored in hungry ghosts
0: and it makes me think of The reference, Bernadine Evaristo's reference to the psychological profundity that is in this book, which does not come at the expense of an entertaining read, but to me, it seems that all of these characters are going through this kind of tumultuous reckoning um, with what has been and what will be. And was that to you? Was that a way of referencing that period in history when, you know, colonial rule was slowly coming to an end it's the end of one thing but not yet the beginning of something else and there is a, a tension that perhaps sat there at that particular moment in time and and perhaps for people who had been colonized it is that idea of of reckoning who are we to become mm. that was a question that for me lingered in that book
1: yeah so when when i was interviewing elders, and this is just a microcosm for what we're talking about here, when I was interviewing a certain elder, and, you know, I was asking basic questions, because when they went to school, um, you know, you had the choice of converting to Christianity, and you would go to a missionary school, which was either run by the British or the Canadians, and there was a, a Presbyterian minister who came down, John Morton and you know, his his whole thing was to kinda of tame the savages, you <laughs> know. But you know, but he they would they would do it in a in a nonviolent sense, but like in a in a kind of coercive sense. Be like, well, um, we will give your children the 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 proper standard education, but you know, you'd have to move away from Hinduism and join the church. And um as I said before, what there would be the, the the people of the impoverished who would have those ambitions, maybe not for themselves but for their children, and they would see that as a notable sacrifice. That yeah, okay, we'll join the church so that we could have a better life. Yes. So when I was I was speaking to one of um uh, one of the elders of the village he was saying that, you know, school was really, really good. Those, those white missionary teachers, they never flogged us. They treated us really well. We got gifts from their wives for Christmas. And it, it was almost like a lamentation that it should go back to something like that. And, you know, I just took everything as it was because everybody had a, had a different experience. And he said that really when things started to get bad was when the the missionaries were moving out and they started putting the locals in charge of the schools where now you had brown-skinned and black-skinned teachers. Now, the problem was that there was such a reverence for the the Canadian and the British teachers that now it was seen that maybe you're not getting a proper standard education now with, with Trinidadian teachers, with East Indian and black teachers. So there was now uh instead of going for respect you would you would you would now charge for fear and so these local teachers would now put on uh suits they would be ultra british in in a in a sense they would now put on suits as blazing hot and they would have whips with them and they would enact um m- much more stern forms of corporal punishment than their british counterparts and this was to to Ghana. You know, fear and respect from the children and thus kind of sparked a culture of us turning against each other, using, like forming this, this power struggle with, with each other that wasn't there previously because now we had to have a certain type of people that was in charge and a certain type of people who had to submit to that. Whereas before it was just accepted that, the, you know, the, the British, the white people were in charge and we would submit. And, we're
0: all one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Colonial yeah. rule, yeah. that's right.
1: So even though the when the British moved out, and I describe it as tr- Trinidad was being killed and was now being resurrected, it spawned a new type of Trinidadian. that where you give, you know, you give that person the power and they're going to abuse it much, pro- probably much worse. The Nicolino counterpart.
0: Absolutely. It's one yeah. of those awful kind of legacies of of colonial rule mm. is that you then have these racial tensions between yeah. the both, you know, parties have been colonised. And I think, you know, that's, again, another one of those tensions that you play with so beautifully. It's so beautifully woven into the stories of these characters that you have on the page. Um, talking about the creation of story world and characters, you really evoke, there's a lushness to your descriptions um, of the story world here. And I wondered if this was in part reflective of your background. You have a degree in biology Mm -hmm. and environmental sciences. Is that right? Yes. Can you talk a little bit about... Um, what it is that you drew on. What was important for you to reference in terms of details of flora and fauna, for example, to set this story world?
1: Well, one thing that I, I always find beautiful and not, not wholly unique, but it, it forms part of our identity in the Caribbean is our biodiversity and how that setting interacts with the people. And I often think of it when when i'm when I'm writing setting in the, in in Trinidad, I often think of it as itself being something dynamic, yeah you know, almost character like. So when it came to describing these, you know the flora and the fauna, there would be certain qualities that that would be imbued within, you know within those descriptions. And they might they may not be. Totally obvious, you know, to the reader, and I—I I hadn't meant for it to be totally obvious, but I'd still wanted it to evoke something, like when you're reading, rather than it being, um, imagine it like a static painting in the background. I wanted it to be something interactive with with the characters, because that's just how it is in, in the Caribbean, and I'm not—I sure, I can't speak for other countries, but when you're out there, you're out there, and you're gonna be very small in in nature, and nature is something that is can be seen as neither good nor bad. It doesn't really it doesn't really care about anything. It it yeah yeah it it, it is itself we it is itself sovereign to the humans that that inhabit it, and you know being uh, doing my my degrees in science in biology and environmental sciences, that's something that you know very quickly and for but in hungry ghosts i wanted to incorporate incorporate it where there are certain degrees in which you are exposed to that uncaring nature whereas if you're living in a lush grand estate like dalton and mali chango and it rains um, so much that you know it floods and it forms a, a cage. It doesn't matter because you're already protected. Whereas if you're living in this dilapidated barrack, this tangle of of rust and and wood and rot, and rains and is gonna is 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 basically gonna be in a diving bell at you know at the bottom of an ocean where the water is constantly seeping in, and it is in that sense where the your your own dwelling your own way of life um affects 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 your uh, affects your, your own conflicts so i was using nature and animals and whenever it rains scorpions are, are displaced and put into the barrack and whereas you know someone living in the village that wouldn't be a problem so there's certain barriers between the humans and nature and those barriers get thinner and thinner as you move. To the impoverished,
0: yeah, and there's also a great sense in the book of not only your your reverence for nature um as a force, mm. but also how, at some point, as you say, that veil kind of you know comes to the side, and the characters almost seem to be consumed by nature. There is much more of a sense of. Um, as you say, nature continues to be what it is and to do what it does, but because the characters themselves have gone through these huge, big, dramatic upheavals, their place within the natural world seems to shift accordingly too. So a really, again, beautiful use of metaphor within your book of using the natural world um, as as a way to speak to how it is that the characters traverse the plot and their conflicts too. I thought that this might be a, a good um, point for you to, to bring us in to the story world with, with a reading from the book.
1: Sure. So I'll read from the opening chapter, not from the very beginning, but from what sets up some of the main characters in his story and the main setting. He was an only child, frail but uncommonly precocious. Large intelligent eyes, his nose deep in old crumpled magazines, the frown of an old holy man in these troubling times. He had skin so fair that the elders had said it was touched by the goddess Radha. He once had hair like a wild child, a haven of lice, never wanted it combed, ruffled it, and teased it back out if anyone did. This child's name was Krishna Sarup. Krishna was from a family of three. The father, Hans, was in his early thirties. Sun-kissed skin, palms like pressed leather. He had eyes that smiled. The remnants of his marasmic childhood still perceptible. Sometimes his limbs seemed more spindly than they really were. But when he labored in the cane fields, he was as handsome and strong and spirited as the war-god Subramania. Worked hard his whole life for a pittance. Enough for a dust of flour from the Chinese merchants, some Bermudez biscuits and a scoop of ghee, and made do with it. For the past year, he'd worked on the Chango estate, where he built fences and repaired doors and maintained the land. His job description changed every week, because he could do everything. The mother, Shweta, had sunken eyes and made her look as if she were always fighting slumber, a sturdy backbone and skin dark as a tilled earth a stud on her left nostril to keep her from outside seduction. She always wore white cotton dresses that stopped mid-calf, her muslin du slung like a sash. She kept a bandana garden in a barrel trough. A few tulsi sprouts had inveigled their way in there over time. She let them be. Things push themselves into life, whether you like them or not. The tree lived in a sugar cane estate barrack. These barracks were scattered like half-buried bones across the plain, strewn from their colonial corpse. In their marrow, the ghosts of the indented, and the offspring of those ghosts. This particular barrack sat by its lonesome, raw and jagged, as a young tooth, in the paragraph spangled stretch of meadow, beyond the cane field, beyond the rice paddies, the village proper and the sugar mill, in a corner where God had to squint to see, neighbor to nothing, one donkey cart ride away from the closest dry-goods store. This a place of lesser lives, a tangle of wood and iron that seemed to slightly shift shape every time a strong wind galloped over it. There was a communal yard for cooking and drinking and fighting. Inside, five families, of five rooms, ten by ten feet. Between each were cracked wooden partitions that did not go all the way up, the cold earth and ground, clothes stitched from old flower bags, coconut fiber mattresses permanently depressed, topped with pillows stuffed with sugarcane tassels, the macadam road here had no names, only distinguished by the frequency of their fractures. Here, the snakes' calls blurred with the primeval hiss of wind through the plants. I picture, in plein air, all shades of green soaked with vermilion and red, purple, and ochre. Picture what the good people call fever grass, wild corioli, shining bush, timorees, marias, borgri, borkano, christophene, chenet, moko, moringa, Pomerac, Pomsitae, Barbadine, Barhar. Humanity as ants on the savannah. Picture curry leaves springing into helices. Mangroves cross-legged in the decanted swamp. Bastions of sugarcane bowing and sprawled, even and remote. The spoiled smell of sulfate of ammonia somewhere in there. Pink hearts of caladium that beat and bounce between burned touches of bird cucumber. All laying like tufts and bristles and pillages upon the back of some buried colossus. And the Churchill Roosevelt Highway sliced that colossus in half. On one side, the belief of bush and burlap and Sohari and jute and rattan and thatch and Tapia; on the other was bell village. The dogma of a new will howling and preaching steel and diesel and rayon and vinyl and gypsum and triple glazed glass. Trinidad had been killed, and now it was to be resurrected.
0: Oh, thank you so much for that reading, Kevin. Um... It's winter here currently while we're speaking here in Australia, but I swear I can feel the humidity. Rise off the page as you read. I think your characters are so effortlessly complete. I am shocked. You're 36 years old. How is it that you write these beautifully poetic characters? I really want to know how you found them because each one of their perspectives and and how you voice them makes the world feel whole can you tell me who came easily to you and who did you perhaps have to labor with for a period of time before you found them?
1: I would I say the person who came easiest to me was the person who actually came first to me, which was Marley Chango. And she's a character who in herself is colonized by her husband because she's, uh, we, we find out that even though she lives in this grand estate, it's pretty much a gilded prison. And, she is being told how to dress, how to speak. She's basically being totally reinvented from her original self to the point that she no longer remembers. She kind of place where her past self ended and where this new one began. And you know, she she in a sense she struggles with that. And I thought that you know she's a a pretty good representation of um of the setting itself, of the time itself. So who um. The the characters that came a bit that were a bit harder for me to work out in my mind were, were some of the younger ones, um uh Krishna, who is one of the main uh child protagonists, and uh, Lata, who is his friend in, in the barrack, and um somewhat of a of a crush a love interest. And it is because they actually have more modern sensibilities that that may not have been um that may not have existed back then. It would have existed, but maybe not as to the degree as as they have it. Creative so license. Yes, <laughs> yes, so there's there's there. Perhaps maybe there 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 have been people back you know who that happened. But I know I, in my mind, there was some creative license used there to invoke some modern sensibility in these characters and that
0: youthful spirit that comes through.
1: Yeah. Yes, and the kind of youthful rebellion that that we, they would have had. And this, I mean, if I think if we didn't have that, maybe the world of it, or the setting of it, might have, may have felt too alien to to readers outside of Trinidad, or maybe even readers, even younger readers who may not have been aware of of how mindsets up mindsets have changed since then. So when it came to the characters, I actually envisioned even the most minor character to I, I, I envision them and I try to picture everything about them. So there's a there's a scene uh, early on in the book, I thing is the third chapter where Krishna and Hans, his father, go to a convenience store just to buy one item and there's a clerk that is adamant that only one of them should come in because he can't he can't look at everyone he's kind of afraid that what they will do and the clerk only really has a few lines of of description and but he is actually in my mind a fully realized character just you know he, he didn't end up all of that didn't end up on the page and even but your process did yeah yeah because yeah. you
0: can you get that sense yeah yes.
1: I, I would even like invent like Uh, some kind of backstory for them Mm -hmm. why he might have felt that way
2: yeah
1: uh what what might have happened all of that does not need to be on the page Mm -hmm. but it's it's in my mind yes yeah and then um so when it came to there there was a the one the editor at um at my publisher bloomsbury thought that one of the characters the main characters um tarak was a bit extraneous and said that you know it may be better if we were to just remove him and fuse him with, with Krishna. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't he doesn't have any pivotal plot points, but right. he is sort of a counterbalance to Krishna. He's sort of the 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 good angel yes. so to speak. He doesn't succeed in being the good angel but he's there as that. Right. Because Krishna really goes on a downward spiral at a point.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he is someone who is also fully realized for me. And so, so even like I, and maybe snippets of this would have gotten out into descriptions where he's, he's a tall guy, but he's always um hunched over trying to make himself small mm-hmm. as if, you know, he doesn't want to be seen by anyone or he's always twitching his shoulders like a dog shaking or flees from his back. And because, because they, they are so realized in my mind, I, I am able to r- to write defences and dissertations for yes, them.
0: Yes, yes.
1: For editors. Well, like it must I have worked them. because Tarax yeah. stays yeah, still on the there. page. He's still, still there. There. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. So yeah. So
1: there are some characters that are there because of my defences. <laughs>
0: and also, you know, you've just given a great example of your, your beautiful visual grammar. The way in which you draw a character, um, you know, from the page really gives us a sense of who they are to one another, the dynamics between characters, but also how they see themselves in this story world. Mm. I'm really interested to know what your process was in figuring out how much of each character um, you needed to put on the page in the story, because we have this wonderful kind of movement through not only the story world in the here and now, but we we flip back to the origin stories of lots of characters mm. and we understand slowly how it is that they came to be in the present-day story. Did you construct these backstories beforehand? Was it always going to be a part of the broader story or was that something that you found in the writing process?
1: So I guess how, how it actually came to be was actually, admittedly, a bit of a wonky process because... Um They're I was the best the, <laughs> processes <laughs> so i it wasn't i would say properly planned because when i was writing that um uh, there's a backstory for mali that is set in um uh port of spain and uh, Chagaramas, which is the northwest of trinidad where the Amer- the american navy was stationed there during world war Two, which is you know in 1940s and when they came they they marched everyone out of um of that seaside village and all of them were displaced. And that was just something I was reading about and researching. And I said, that you know, this is actually at the same time as, um, you know, the world I'm setting this in. And it may be good to write something about that, even though that is so far from central Trinidad, from, you know, the sugarcane estate barracks. So I I was just doing something experimental at first. And I'd be like, well, maybe this would make... Like uh, some kind of thematic backstory, and if it, it, I'm not sure if it was ever meant to stay, but you know, so in in a sense, I would have the, it, the, these ideas would come, and then the the idea of 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 ghosts came to mind, where we would have we would have these these characters from protagonists' pasts, um, most of them deceased, whether it is um, the twins' father. Or or missing like Dalton Chango, or Hans's mother that we learn about later on, or Hans and Trita's daughter Hema, there's a there's there's a, a huge significance in which the the absences play. So, and I'm generally not a fan of a flashback in in in, in novels um i think that you know it it could it could be handled a a bit more gracefully but in in this case here i try to make them short and i try to make them to as cold opens to certain sections and they would actually thematically link to to those sections rather than just being serve as plot so when it's so all of all of that was was in, was in consideration, and then I also, at a point, considered removing them and integrating them within conversation. But I think it it works as it as it is now.
0: I, I'm glad uh, yeah. you didn't. I, <laughs> yeah. have to, I yeah. concur. There's lovely moments when you come to a point and there is a revelation that as a reader, you think, oh, I found this, but obviously, you know, mm-hmm. it's been intentional. And that is that is part of the, you know, the the transaction, you know, it's part mm-hmm. of the, the contract between a reader and a writer is that I, as a writer, you you will allow the reader moments of surprise and, and revelation. And that is the delight of reading a book like yours is that you stumble across them, these unlikely moments. Um, but you were talking about, you know, the the absence, the the characters who are ghosts who are evoked on the page. And one of the things that I loved about this book was the palpable presence of absence. You have um, Dalton who is introduced and then very quickly disappears and you have this kind of, you know, this hanging over the entire novel, the question of what has happened to him, will he return? Um and there's always this sense of tension about space um, and the the danger of spaces, especially for women who mm. are perhaps alone. Um, but it also made me think about how well you write female characters. Um, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of violence that is spoken to implicitly and explicitly in this book. There's a lot of gendered violence that you speak about. Um, but how how did you come to to find your way into that kind of territory? Because none of it feels excessive. None of it feels salacious. It is all part of that sense of of character and world building.
1: Mm. You're probably the minority of those who don't think it seems excessive because I've had people come up to me and be like, you must be a pretty scary guy (laughs) to come up with. But look, I I think
0: it's you're brave in that you haven't shied away from some of those realities and you delve into it with, you know, such a sense of clarity, you know, about you're not apologising for these characters but you are trying to find a way in which – you You try to understand how it is that these these tensions and these these moments arise,
1: mm. and the honest answer here is that the violence has to exist with the type of plot that is there. There are certain types of violence that is that I chose not to include within the book because it did exist at the time, and a lot of it was rampant at the time. So, like, for example, in the barrack there would be lots of cases of sexual assault especially if there was a a, a woman who's living there and her husband had passed away um which is which is like one of the characters in the book but because it it's it's the the plot of the book doesn't concern that i you know chose not to include that and so when it came to the violence in the book i just stuck with what the plot was and there inevitable crossroads. To think otherwise would be a fantasy and to to want it to be otherwise would be wanting fantasy. So I came to a point where I said that I have to think more of the characters in the book, the plot of the book, and not so much of representation of, of violence or this would be too violent for a certain audience. Because that would be doing a disservice to to the characters that and to would, a greater
0: yeah. truth that you are yeah. trying in some way to to explore or express.
1: Yeah, yeah, that would be sanitizing the setting, which I is definitely not something that I wanted to do. And so, yeah. So that when it, when it came to that, I just thought, you know, there's a point where if two characters meet, if there's a certain conflict, the situation is gonna come to blows, no matter what. No, no matter who who or what someone says so and that is what i was thinking about that is the primary thing in my mind it wasn't what um, uh, some book club in england would, would think about it
0: but it it you know it makes me think about how history helps us unpack the present um and also that the more specific you you write, you know, from a, a cultural point of view, perhaps the further that it, it travels. It felt that there was a great relevance to this story um, in many ways when you do look at those, you know, points of identity like race and and gender, for example, mm. and class. But on the flip side of that... You know, you've embraced the poetics of the human story with, with moments of, you know, pure delight and, and brevity and moments of of hope which you afford your characters. So perhaps that is also reflective of what you were talking about before, that that Sort of sensibility of finding if you have the darkness, there must be the lightness. Is mm. that something that you were interested in exploring too?
1: Mm, my 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 idea was to include everything, whether everything that would be pertinent in any sense. And you know, there's the the idea that lotuses sometimes spring from filth, and sometimes the the most the most beautiful animal could be highly destructive or poisonous and there's these ideas that to you to, to include some things but not the other to include the beautiful but not the not the squalid again would be would be like sanit sanitizing the setting. And 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 vice versa. That there there is there is a balance to the two, and when it comes to, and especially as I said, when it comes to nature, nature just is. So a lot a lot of the descriptions within there is just really interactions between the the feral and, and the the civilized.
0: Yeah. 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 So Hungry Ghost was a little bit, I think, a, a departure of sorts in terms of perhaps the scale that you had written um, with before, the amount of characters, the fact that you've gone back in time. What did you learn from the process? And, and moving forward, what are you next interested in exploring? Mm.
1: So I learned, what I learned from this, this is probably the most research I ever had to do. to. to to write a book and how many years it was about two years or so and i mean but there's there's also gatherings of information over 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 many many years where i didn't know i was going to write a book and i came across the problem of having too much research where there were too many people that i spoke to for too long and i wanted to include almost everything just I didn't want to be like I wasted anyone's time. That sounds
0: like a good problem to <laughs> yeah. have too much research.
1: Yeah. So, and the the first manuscript, the first iteration of the manuscript was about fifty thousand words longer. Wow. than it is there. Okay. Um, we need to to trim this down. There's a lot of extra information there. Another thing that I learned was I ended up trimming something. So I I received a a, a Facebook message from from a woman about a, a month a month ago. And there's a character in the, in the novel who's a bit neurodivergent. His name is Sachin. And he is referred to um, by other members of the Barak as a as murka, which is, basically means like you're illiterate. Um, so, but there's, there's one instance where he's, in, in the, the, the third-person narration, he's referred to as Idiot. And that's that's the word that they would have used back then. So the woman had uh, a child who was neurodivergent. She's you know, she said that she was actually she was really enjoying the book and then she came across that part and it really hurt her. And I there was a part of that major part that was trimmed where he actually had one of those backstories. He was it was from his point of view. And it was to show that he and and, and we were talking about it, we had a, a convivial conversation after. Where I was, and I sent her like these trimmed <laughs> chapters because he he was really skilled at doing nuts, so and there's a part where you know Hans is trying to get him a job at the sugarcane um uh, like like this loading station where they load it onto onto um, mules, and he's really really good at doing this, but that got trimmed, so in the end, his character kinda comes off as a bit incomplete, I mean he's complete in my mind, but you know in the book. And maybe that's something that I have to look into the future, that when I'm trimming things, I need to make sure that what is being trimmed has to be at least complete for the reader, not just for me.
0: That's fascinating, actually, (laughs) thinking about, well, what what is the consequence of taking this portion out? Um, And and thinking also about the experience. What does readership mean? That's fascinating. But so generous of you to reach out to this woman um, as well. Yeah. What what do you think the – have there been any differences? I'm really curious to know how the reception of the book may, may differ. What has it been like domestically? Um, what feedback have you had from Trinidad as opposed to outside of the Caribbean?
1: Well, one thing I was fearing is that in Trinidad there would be like a history his professor who would come out and be like, these things didn't happen – but there hasn't been such a such an instance that actually gotten really good um reception in so, so I only really read the Caribbean reviews. <laughs> the lot of that come out. I've read very little of the ones abroad. Because they, they tend to have you know that context there and they would I, I wouldn't say that they would get it more, but it, it they would they would get the, the context that maybe readers outside. There China, are different access yeah. points, yeah. Yeah. So um it's been really well received, and it's uh, you know it's a talking point amongst um, book clubs and, and literary communities there. It's also been well received abroad, but uh, I said that one thing that's always notable is whenever uh, I speak to people about it, they always bring up the dogs. Um, <laughs> I wasn't going we, to, but now you which, have heaven. <laughs> which we hadn't discussed here, and... So there's a sense in where there is animal cruelty in the book. There was animal cruelty back then, and but it seems that this is like a major sticking point for certain um, communities abroad. Yes. So was it
0: the the um, the descriptions themselves, or the fact that you were actually talking about animal cruelty?
1: I, I think I think is. It it opens, and this is not a spoiler, really. It opens with a, a dog being accidentally drowned. And that is like immediately a red flag for, for a lot of readers. Unless
0: I don't kill the dog. Yeah.
1: So, but um what I was actually trying to get across with that was that there are certain characters who treat this as quite quite flippantly. They they would they would have wouldn't have a second thought about it. And I wanted readers to raise a red flag for those characters because those characters actually are kind of good guys in the beginning. A lot of people kind of switch as as the story is going along. And there are certain characters that refer to the dogs as gendered pronouns he and she, and there are certain characters that refer to the dogs as it. And I would say, if you've read the book, it's worth reading it back to see which characters refer to he and she and it. And there's also the case that... and. Just being vague here that a a barrack child dies in the book. But and uh, the point that I always bring up is that you all are asking about the dogs, but y'all are not asking about this child. And I said, you know, that is what it was back then. It is something to think about. It sure
0: is. Yeah. I'm certainly going to go back. And this is, <laughs> for all of our listeners, this is certainly a book that you will want to return to again and again because there are so many dimensions um, within. Kevin, it's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much for your time and also your beautiful words.
1: You're welcome, and thank you.
2: You've been listening to Kath Moore, in conversation with Kevin Jared Hossein. The official bookseller for this event was The Sun Bookshop. This event was recorded at the Wheeler Centre on Wednesday, the 16th of August, 2023.
0: The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news, and our full calendar of events at WheelerCentre.com.